0: on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm usually here with my co-host, Michelle Whitty, but she is on vacation at the beach, so you're going to have to go against the grain with me alone. We have a good show today, some really interesting guests, among my favorite guests, uh, and there's actually a lot going on. You know how we said yesterday that We were scrambling a little bit because there didn't seem to be a lot uh, happening uh, in the world. Yeah, uh, that's not the case today. There's a ridiculous amount of stuff going on in the world. I want to start with an absolutely chilling story coming from Clark County, Indiana. At least 28 women have filed a federal lawsuit against the Clark County, Indiana Sheriff's Office and the Clark County Jail, saying that a prison guard there sold access to the women's wing of the jail and allowed male prisoners to go over to the female side and rape them. The guards charged prisoners $1,000 each for access to a key that allowed them into the women's wing. They would return to their cells after they were done raping these women. Despite cameras, all over the jail, not a single guard was seen to have come to any of the women's aid. At least one of those female uh, prisoners is now pregnant because of the rape. Several are undergoing psychological counseling because they've been so traumatized. And believe it or not, no arrests have been made. Now, the only reason we even know that this happened is that one of the victims of the rape was transferred to another prison. And when she got to that prison, she made a complaint. She didn't make a complaint in Clark County because she feared for her safety. Once she made the complaint, this investigation began, and uh, and has been proven uh, to have actually taken place. Tiva Pharmaceuticals, one of the country's largest manufacturers of opioids, has come to an agreement with 2,500 local governments, states, and tribes to pay a $4.25 billion settlement over the company's role in the opioid epidemic that we have here in the United States. Tiva is an Israeli company that has produced far more opioids than Johnson & Johnson, and uh, its production of OxyContin dwarfs that of Purdue Pharma. This is going to be kind of a big deal. Tell you the truth, I had never heard of Tiva Pharmaceuticals until today, until I read this in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, it's going to be kind of a big deal. Now, this money is not going directly to victims, people who overdosed on uh, Tiva's opioids. It's not going to the family members of people who died using Tiva's opioids. It's going to local governments, states and tribes. We'll see what they do with five and a quarter billion dollars. Uh, we're having some technical problems i'm told and we are restarting our rumble feed so hang on i'm looking right now and rumble is not yet working but it will in a moment that just happens every once in a while uh there's a, an update on the um on the tiffany Greiner case uh i'm sorry brittany brittany griner case coming uh, out of russia she testified today uh in her in her trial even though she's changed her plea to that of guilty. Uh, The Russians do it differently than we do here in the United States. So even though she's changed her plea to guilty, the trial is ongoing. And she said a couple of very important things today. Uh, She said that when she was arrested at the airport, uh, that the translator who was assigned to her did not translate everything that was being said to her. He would translate just bits and pieces. So she didn't have a full understanding of what was going on. And then she was presented with a document, which apparently was a confession, and she was ordered to sign it. She doesn't read Russian and didn't know what it said. So she signed it thinking this would, you know, get her out of this predicament. Um, it w- didn't get her out of the predicament. It put her deeper in. Her attorney said, we're not arguing that Brittany uh took it here, meaning the the marijuana uh oil or the hash oil whatever whatever it was as a medicine we're still saying that she involuntarily brought it here because she was in a rush. That's been her very consistent um the story that she had been prescribed this stuff for chronic pain uh due to injuries from her basketball career. She put it in a in a makeup bag and forgot it. And then she put the makeup bag in her suitcase and returned to Russia after being in the United States. She also presented a doctor's letter, um, which was a letter recommending that she use medical cannabis to treat her pain. Um, there was a Russian neuropsychologist who also testified on her behalf today uh, that worldwide use of medical cannabis is actually quite common, even if it's not common Uh, In Russia. Last week, we told you about an upcoming vote in the Senate on the Respect for Marriage Act, which would enshrine the right of same-sex and interracial marriage in federal law. Despite the fact that it's ready to come to the Senate floor for a vote, most Republican senators claim to have not read it, and almost none of them will say if they will vote for it. You may recall that when we talked about this last week— Uh, There were four out of 50 Republican senators who had actually uh, taken a position. Two said they were for it. Two said they were against it. The two for it were like uh, Murkowski of Alaska and Collins of Maine, I think. Uh, Now, in order to invoke cloture, which means to to end debate, to prevent a filibuster in the Senate, the Democrats are going to need 60 votes. They have their own 50. They have two Republicans and of the remaining 46 Republicans, because you remember two are voting no, they're going to need six of those 46. Now, the reason why I think that is going to be tough is The Washington Post and CNN both asked every Republican senator what their position is uh, on this bill. Here are some of the responses. Haven't read it. That Senator John Kennedy, Republican of Louisiana, haven't looked at it. That Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, uh, I'm not going to comment on it in terms of how I'm going to vote until I actually see the bill, if it even gets a vote. That Senator Mike Braun, Republican of Indiana, uh, they're not they're not just saying this stuff off the cuff. This is. This is what they've been told to say by their leadership. Senator John Thune, who is the number two Republican in the Senate, said most of our members are going to say, why are we having this vote right now when nobody's talking about it? It seems like the Democrats are using it as a distraction. Well, the distraction is that Clarence Thomas, when he wrote in the, uh, in the opinion that overturned Roe v. Wade, that there is no constitutional right to same-sex marriage. There's no constitutional right to interracial marriage, even though he's in an interracial marriage. So the Democrats came up with this bill. It easily and quickly passed in the House of Representatives. Now it's jammed up in the Senate. My guess is this is just my own guess. Of course, I've been here a long time and I've been on I had been on Capitol Hill for a long time. My guess is it's going to get more than 50 votes. It's going to get less than 60 votes. The Republicans are going to kill it. And they're going to say that it's unnecessary. Um, I think that's probably wrong, but I believe that's what's going to happen. We also told you yesterday that Donald Trump is in town for the first time since Joe Biden's inauguration. He gave a speech at the America First Policy Institute, and the question was whether he was going to harp on the past. Well, he's Donald Trump, so of course he harped on the past. After 20 minutes about how the election was rigged, that was his word, and stolen from him, also his phrase, Trump went into the policy portion of his speech. I didn't think Donald Trump could still surprise me, but he surprised me. This speech was all about law and order. Trump called for a vastly expanded federal death penalty. He called for the death penalty for most major drug cases, not involving death, not involving terrorism, just drug dealing and drug importation, death, like in Singapore or Iran or Saudi Arabia. Um, He also called for much longer prison sentences for federal crimes. Now, mind you, we have some of the longest prison sentences in the world right? And I know you've heard me talk about this statistic many times, but I'm going to say it again. We have 5%, we have about 4% of the world's population, and we have 25% of the world's prison population. And Donald Trump wants to make sentences even longer. He didn't say anything at this America First Policy Institute about reform. He didn't say anything about training. He didn't say anything about getting people prepared to reenter society. It was all about keeping them in prison longer or in some cases putting them to death. The only other thing that he said in this speech was to call for more money for police departments across the country. Uh, Interestingly enough, he never mentioned the Capitol Police. Uh, but he said that we need to stand with the police. We need to give them everything that they need to do their jobs. And that was about it. Now, there are a couple of news outlets today uh, that have articles saying that as Merrick Garland closes in on Trump and those people around him, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the show, uh, Trump will likely move up his announcement that he'll run for president. I'm still of the belief that he's not going to do it, but, you know, I'm just an amateur, so what do I know? But um, we may get, a, we may get a, an announcement uh, before the end of the summer. Who knows? Roger Stone said he thought Trump would announce his candidacy before the end of July. Well, July only has four days left in it, so we'll see where that goes. The Washington Post reported this morning that the Justice Department is indeed conducting a criminal probe into Trump's actions on January 6, 2021. This is the first time that we've had any confirmation that a criminal investigation is underway. A Justice Department official told the Post that phone records from Trump and from his top aides have been seized and are being analyzed. In addition, a grand jury has been impaneled. This is the first we've heard of, gran- of a grand jury and has already heard testimony from at least two of former Vice President Mike Pence's top aides. The shocking thing to me is that um, most Republicans uh, will tell you that they don't care. They're not interested. And as if that wasn't bad enough for Trump, his former acting defense secretary, Chris Miller, told the January 6th committee that Trump was lying When he said that he had put 10,000 National Guard troops on standby to be deployed to the Capitol on January 6th, Miller said, quote, I was never given any direction or order or knew of any plans of that nature. So someone's lying. Uh, Chris Miller says that it's Donald Trump. A new CNN poll has very bad news for Joe Biden. The poll found that 75% of Democrats want somebody other than Joe Biden to be the Democratic nominee for president in 2024. In January, 51% of Democrats wanted Biden to be the nominee. Major turnaround. And finally, CNN is reporting that Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts lobbied the court's newest members hard in the run-up to the Roe v. Wade decision, Roberts thought that he had convinced Justice Brett Kavanaugh to vote to uphold Roe, but Kavanaugh decided at the last minute to vote to overturn the landmark decision. Roberts told friends that he believed he would have won the vote had the first draft of the decision not been leaked. Once that draft was in the public domain, he said it was nearly impossible for justices to change their positions. Crazy. That's just the start of what we have on the show today. It's going to be very busy. So we're going to take a short break. We're going to welcome Mark Sloboda in a minute. You're listening to Political Misfits. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. Last week, we told you about comments made by the head of the British intelligence service MI6 about the Ukraine war. He said that the Russian army was running short of supplies and materiel, and Russian troops were exhausted, and that the Ukrainian military would soon make major gains in Luhansk and Donetsk. Now the New York Times is repeating the assertions, saying that Ukraine is poised to take the southern city of Kherson, the first Ukrainian city to fall to Russian forces. It says that the Ukrainians are bombing Russian ammunition depots, destroying command posts, and disrupting supply lines. Meanwhile, Russian energy giant Gazprom said it would further reduce natural gas flows through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline to 20% of capacity, citing equipment repairs. But the move is ramping up fears that Gazprom may cut off gas to Europe as it begins to prepare for winter. We're joined by Mark Sloboda. Mark is a well-known international affairs and security analyst. Welcome back, Mark. John, thanks for having me.
1: It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the show.
0: Mark, we're always happy to have you and always happy that you can explain these complex issues to us in plain English. So let's start with, with what What's happening on the front lines of this war? You know, we talked when you were last on the show about the head of MI6 uh, talking about how the war is turning around on the ground and and the Ukrainians are going on the offensive. The New York Times today is talking about how uh, how much better things are for the Ukrainians because they're destroying Russian ammunition depots. These command posts, they're disrupting supply lines. Russian soldiers can't get enough food. Uh, they're having trouble replenishing ammunition. Now, interestingly enough, we don't see any of this on video, right? There are video cameras all over the place in Ukraine. And these assertions, we're not seeing proof of on video. So we see these press articles, but then we don't see. Actual evidence that any of this is true. Can you tell us what's happening in the Donbass and in Crimea?
1: Yeah. First of all, I mean, they are attributing much of this change uh, to the U.S. Um, uh, providing the Kiev regime with a handful right. of multiple launch rocket systems known as the High Mars, the right. high altitude multiple launch rocket system, right? And it's a fairly good system. It Is not the best system. Russia actually has a system within its regular armed forces, the tornado, the tornado that actually exceeds it by nearly every capacity. It it has the same range of accuracy, but with a longer range and heavier salvo fire and has a, a, a more... Um, off-road chassis uh, vehicle that is used to uh, cart it around. Uh, so, I mean, they're presenting this as some type of gang uh, game danger. They're, the Kiev regime has successfully hit a handful of uh, ammo depots um, and a single, possibly two, uh, command and control nodes mm. um, within the past month, right? That, that's what we're right. looking at. But this is no more than they were doing before, right? Because <laughs> the kit regime has already lost some seven hundred multiple launch rocket systems, right? Uh, a, a varying grade. But, you know, it, not so far behind the high Mars that it is such a, a game changer. And they still, they, I mean, a multiple launch rocket system is, basically a rocket system attached to a truck. It is incredibly vulnerable Mm -hmm. after Mm -hmm. it fires, right? And Russia has air dominance over the entirety of Ukraine and complete air superiority over the front, right, Uh, where where it's concentrated. Um, The the counter battery, uh, either artillery fire or, you know, uh, getting— Um, uh, aircraft or drones uh, or or even um, uh, cruise missiles up into the air um, is almost assuredly happening. Russia already tells us that of the eight high Mars systems that the U.S. has provided and are supposedly in the field, they've already destroyed four. It, it is not a game changer. It is not a game changer at 16. It is not a game changer at 30. I don't think 400 of them would be a game changer, right, uh, when Russia has already destroyed, you know, more than 700 multiple launch rocket systems as well as of uh, all the other things. Plus, these systems are designed to operate in a combined arms uh, uh, maneuvers, right? right? They have infantry defending them. They have tanks fronting them. They have uh, air force uh, defending them. They have air defenses. None of that. This is a type of one shot scoot and shoot because the Kiv regime doesn't have the military capacity to do combined arms maneuvers at this point. They don't have the number of of trained personnel on these systems. Right. It is difficult to train people in the midst of a conflict. You can train handfuls of them. And as soon as one system gets hit, you've lost all that months of training that was required for just that handful of people. It is difficult to provide the missiles. Russia says uh, they just hit another uh, just a, a couple of days ago. They hit another site and destroyed 100 high Mars um, rockets. Wow. Um, they um, you don't have logistics, right? These things break down in the field, right? Military equipment constantly needs sure. maintenance, repairs, constantly. none of that. They have none of that. They've got to send it all back all the way across the country, out of the country, uh, either uh, hopefully some uh, NATO ally, Poland, or somewhere they can do repairs there, maybe in Germany. Uh, but anyway, it, this is not going to change the conflict, and it is beyond me why they feel the propaganda need to present it as such mm. when there are inevitably going to be proven catastrophically wrong. Um, now, right now, there is, the Kiev regime is attempting to make um, a, I don't want to say a counter-offensive because uh, th- that is of a greater magnitude, but counter-attacks in the South um from uh the the north uh the north slightly northeastern direction of Krivoy Rog, uh, uh a city um in uh Popova, uh province um down uh to Kherson. But these forces have been beaten back at every turn. They just mm. tried to make another crossing of the local river there, the Ingulets uh and and were 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 handed to them. Uh, mostly by Russian military, Russian artillery, heavy artillery, which they're still outnumbered even in this Southern theater by more than eight to one, according to their own Jeez. accounts. Um, and, uh, you know, it is just not what they want it to be. There is no way they are going to take Kherson back. Theoretically, if they have somehow hidden more of an, Innocent new army information somewhere in Ukraine or in Poland that they that they somehow have not revealed and Russia has not become aware of and not already launched standoff strikes at that they might be able to recover us a, a, a few settlements. But mm. There's no way they're going to retake Kherson. it is simply not realistic, possible by everything we know of of how much damage, how much casualties. Uh, the, the attrition rate that that they have suffered, not even in the South, much less in the East, where uh, Russian and allied Donbass forces continue to make slow, methodical, grinding advances through these defensive lines <laughs> that have been built up over eight years. We'll be seeing a uh, we've we've seen all the, the prep settlements fall. We've seen the softening with the artillery. Now a general assault on Bakhmut uh, on this uh, last, uh, the, the first of the last two defensive lines is going to be taking place in the next few days. And these advances continue. So so where is this great advance? The Kim regime just increased the forced conscription range. It was all males between the ages of 16 and 60 were not allowed to leave the country and we're being conscripted yes. in waves and thrown as cannon fodder. They have now raised that people older than 65 oh my are god are now being drafted into the armed forces. You can tell me that they're suddenly winning. Go ahead go ahead and tell me when they're they're yep. they're uh, drafting grandpa. Yeah. Uh, in, in wow. Four. No.
0: Hey no, yeah, let's... No.
1: things are things are going bad for them. And Russia continues with this small professional force, right? Of less than 200,000 yeah, total, including the tens of thousands from the Donbass, some 40 to 50,000 of Eastern Ukrainians fighting with them. And they're, they've taken apart the Kiev regime military that was built up over eight years. And they're taking apart whatever piecemeal, uh, uh, uh newly trained, uh, conscripts, on uh, with with a handfuls of Western equipment that they're throwing piecemeal into the front. Of course they are, right? This is not. You cannot fashion a new military capable of combined arms maneuver in the middle of a conflict. Yeah, with a vastly superior enemy, and I, I just don't understand the propaganda at this point. The, the 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 military analysts who used to have a reputation in the West. Right? I'm not just talking the pundit heads. But even most of the serious Western military analysts have devolved into either just ridiculous propaganda or silence. Yes. Which I think is even more telling.
0: Help me understand what the strategy is for the Russians in Crimea. The media here make a very big deal uh, about the fact that the Russians shelled the port of Odessa uh, just a couple of hours after a deal was struck to export Ukrainian grain, that move seems provocative. And that's certainly how it's being billed here in the United States. Why, why do that in the first place when you've just signed a, an agreement to, uh, to let this grain out? And what's the Russian position, the military position in Crimea? Uh, you know, we, we talk so much about the fighting in the East uh, we don't so much talk about the fighting in the south.
1: Okay, well, Crimea, there is no fighting there. Crimea. Has well, been that, part that of would Russia. account for it then. For,
0: for, 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 <laughs> Crimea
1: has been part of Russia since 2014. Yeah, uh, there, there. Uh, Odessa is not in Crimea. No, no, it's, it's uh, to the Odessa west. Is in is in is to the west. All right. So um, now, what has been happening is um, again. Russia made this initial advances in the beginning of the conflict. They tried this bull rush maneuver combined with a possible decapitation strike at Kiev. It worked in the south wonderfully. All of Harrison and most of Zaporozhye uh-huh. uh, province fell with barely a fight. It didn't work so well around Kiev. Uh, so Russia withdrew those forces and then went into, you know, the expected um, long grinding conflict through the Donbass. but they've made these huge gains in the south uh, but they then they basically held those they haven't made huge moves to advance the lines in the south they've basically been consolidating that position while concentrating offensive effort in the east. the Kiev regime has made, repeated attempts to retake territory in the South, which have all ended in in failure and and really high casualties. Mm. Um, On the way to Odessa, Russia would have to take Nikolaev. With regard to this grain export, most of it's PR, right? Um, Right. Ukraine has already in the last, in the the June to June cycle, uh, that the, the which grain exports are measured has already exported forty seven million uh tons of of grain this year which is already more than they did last year wow (laughs) okay wow right so um and a lot of it is now going out through river systems in the danube but most of this is pr understand there is no great shortage of grain from ukraine that is causing a crisis The, the actual crisis is prices uh, and the difficulty of the world's biggest grain supplier, which is Russia, which is hampered by sanctions to make transactions to get insurance for ships, but is still getting its grain to market. But regardless, that grain, because of the inconvenience and because of the higher energy prices, which makes transport higher, is is still going to cause a food crisis. But it's a result of, of the blowback from the <laughs> sanctions driving up. Grain and energy prices, and and making Russia's uh, financial transactions more difficult. That's going to result in the prices, not some great uh, loss of of grain from 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 Ukraine. Where Ukraine's an important grain supplier. Sure, they're number five or six, uh, you know, depending on the year. Uh, but uh, most of their their expected grain has already gone to market. Uh, so you know, th- th- that's mostly propaganda. I mean, it's 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 spin. Sure. Uh, but what? What Russia did with this Odessa strike uh, and they the the regime claims that Russia uh, fired their their pinpoint caliber cruise missiles um, at grain storage and completely missed them and and actually didn't even hit the port. Uh, Uh. Russia says that they targeted a warehouse and a a ship uh, right outside there. Uh, that where U.S. uh, harpoon missiles, uh, advanced anti-ship missiles had been provided to Kiev. Um, And that is what they hit. And they made clear that they are going to continue to make strikes, um, you know, uh, for military purposes like Mm -hmm. this, and that the Kiev regime is not going to be able to use this you know, restored grain trade as once they clear their own mine of uh, their own ports of mines, which they mine themselves in, Um, they're not going to be able to use that as cover uh, to reconstitute military forces, particularly mm-hmm. uh, anti-ship positions for use against the Black Sea Fleet there. It's simply not going to happen. Russia had the intelligence, and they took the shot. Whether they had the intelligence before the deal was signed or they gained it afterwards is, is almost the moot point, uh, but— um, You know, they they reserve the right to make strategic strikes like that. That is Mm -hmm. according to them. We don't know the exact details of the deal that was signed because they're being held. I I think eventually they'll be leaked. Uh, But Russia seems to be very loudly saying that that is uh, not a part of the deal. And they reserve the right to do what they just did.
0: I want to ask you, uh, Mark, about Gazprom. Gazprom seems to be having some equipment problems lately, at least that's what they're telling people. Gas going through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline was temporarily slowed last week. Now Gazprom is saying that they'll send gas to Western Europe at only 20% of capacity. Uh, it's, it seems pretty clear to me that this is, a, this is a political decision more than anything else. If the EU is going to sanction Russia, then Russia will hit Europe back where it hurts in its energy supply. What do you think this means for Europe in the winter? The Germans have already uh, told their populace to begin gathering firewood for the winter. Um, And what do you think the cost to Russia will be, if any?
1: Okay, so... um First of all, uh, capacity before Russia went into their maintenance cycle on Nord Stream one, uh, where they suspended uh trade for, uh, or a uh, passage for about two weeks was already reduced to 40% because of this yeah. turbine issue. Right now they claim there's another issue with another Siemens turbine that they need to send for maintenance. They have the contractual right to send five more turbines <laughs> for repairs, um, uh, uh, until the end of 2024. So uh, this type of uh, game can be kept on. And it's a game. Uh, As far as Russia is concerned, the West has uh, weaponized their entire economies and their control of the global financial and economic system in their existential economic war on Russia. To think that Russia is not going to return fire with what the West needs from Russia is just, you know, absurd. I mean, yeah. that, that, yeah, the outrage is like, yeah, uh, cry, cry me the world's smallest violin. You know, <laughs> well, well, you know, well, I play it. Um, but um, I do not think that they're going to cut off. I think they're going to use these technical excuses uh-huh. to remain within some broad uh, interpretation of the letter of the contracts and still be able to claim that they're a reliable um, uh, gas an energy provider as they always have been even you know uh, you know through the last eight years of civil conflict in Ukraine uh, but they're they're definitely striking back now and they can I think they feel that they can take the loss on gas sales to Europe because first of all the price the, the global price on gas and oil now because of the Western sanctions has risen so high that the Kremlin is making money hands over, uh, you know, uh, foot even with uh, reduced sales and China mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. India and Saudi Arabia is buying Russian oil like crazy.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. That actually, Why? go ahead. Sorry.
1: Yeah. yeah. The, the reason why is they're using refined Russian oil to power their own economy while selling their own right. oil, reserving that for the higher price that they can sell it to the West.
0: Right. Which is which is good <laughs> business. It's, it's, business, it's like what, right? but, what did we think was going to happen?
1: Happen, yeah. But they're certainly looking out for their own interests, not the the West's uh, war, uh, economic war on Russia. So they think they can they can take uh, you know the hit economically uh, from uh, reduced gas sales to Europe to bring the point home. And they're always saying, well. This could all problem all be alleviated immediately if you bring Nord Stream 2 online the way you were supposed to. Um, Or, um, you know, the the word coming Bloomsburg has reported citing sources that Russia will continue uh, this um, vastly reduced flow without cutting off supplies completely until Western sanctions uh, against Russia end, which could possibly mean never. Uh, and I think Russia is actually prepared for that at this point.
0: Uh, in 2019, Russia began delivering gas to China through a pipeline that, on the Russian side, is called the Power of Siberia Pipeline. Um, it's taken eight years to get the pipeline completed, and it runs south through Beijing and onto Shanghai. It seems like exporting gas shouldn't be any problem for the Russians. Cutting off Nord Stream 1 certainly would hurt the Europeans. Uh, will it hurt the Russians? Do they have China to fall back on? We know that the Russians are exporting even more gas now to India. It just seems to me like, like this, this gas crisis in Europe is going to seriously hurt the Europeans and not really have much in the way of an impact. On the Russians.
1: Yeah. Okay. It's more oil that's going to India. Is that what it is? China is increasing oil and gas. Now, the power of Siberia has a capacity that is only just over a third of the amount of gas that at full capacity is. uh, Applied to Europe, it's some 60 billion cubic meters compared to 155 uh, billion cubic meters, which is what was supplied to uh, the EU last year. Um, And there's a difference in pipeline uh, in oil, uh, um, sorry, gas fields where the pipes are sourced from. The power of Siberia two is is power of Siberia one is power is uh, sourced from a Asiatic source, right, in the Asiatic part of mm-hmm. Russia, whereas Europe gets it from a different gas field. Or at the moment, you're, uh, Russia cannot simply, uh, you know, switch a valve. And move that gas through pipelines towards China. Those gas fields, I mean, some of it is possible to convert to liquefied natural gas, possibly, uh, and then, you know, trade uh, to other countries overseas that way. Russia and China have begun the construction of a power of Siberia, too, which will connect to the European sourced fields uh, so that they will have that capacity. But that's still several years in the future. Mm-hmm. But regardless of the losses, in capacity to Europe, Russia feels quite confident that they are more than making that up because of the increased price of, of gas and oil globally of, of everything else that they are managing to sell with increased volumes to China and India and, and so forth. Um, and I mean, take a look at the price of gas right now in Europe. It was uh, uh, over 2,200 per 1,000 cubic meters. That is more than five times what it was last year.
0: Wow. That's pretty dramatic. Well, we will leave it there. Thank you, Mark Sloboda, for joining us. Mark is an international affairs and security analyst, and he joined us from Moscow. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come back. Bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. Pope Francis is in Canada this week to ask forgiveness from the country's Indigenous people for years of forcing Indigenous children into Catholic run schools away from their families, stripped of their language, their culture, and their customs. In hundreds, perhaps thousands of cases, children died and were buried in unmarked graves at those schools. They were subject to abuse, neglect, and violence. And the government, which should have protected them, was in league with the church. The Pope said that he was deeply sorry and ashamed for the colonial attitude of the powers that oppressed indigenous people. We're joined by John Kane. He's a native Mohawk activist and educator. He's the producer and host of the Let's Talk Native podcast. And he's co-host of Resistance Radio on WBAI Pacifica Radio in New York. Welcome back, John.
2: Well, thanks for having me.
0: Oh, we're always glad to have you, John. The New York Times covered this story very closely and published a very long and approving, almost self-congratulatory article accompanied by color pictures. Beautiful spread. They wrote about how the Pope was humbled and sorry and that he begged forgiveness from Canada's indigenous people. It said that people cheered and everything was all flowers and rainbows. But that was just one view. Uh, Tell us how you saw the Pope's visit. What were your feelings and your thoughts about it?
2: Well, it, it, and it was a narrow view. I mean, look, there are certain segments of Native society that um, not only um, are victims of assimilation, but revel in that assimilation. And the people praising the Pope, many of them are Catholics. Right. <laughs> and they're Native. I mean, right. It, it, I was actually surprised it, to see that. <laughs> well, I mean— the Catholic church ran 70% of the, Mm -hmm. uh, the boarding schools on the Canadian side and, and over 50% of the residential schools on the U S side. So that's a a pretty big influence. I do have to correct a few things. Okay. One thing that the churches weren't in league with the the Canadian federal government or the U S government on these boarding schools, they were hired by them. I mean, these schools were funded by the U S government and operated primarily by churches. Wow. So I mean, it's, I mean, at the end of the day, much of the responsibility still rests with with the 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 government uh, behind these things. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's not to say. I mean, here is the thing: we get into parsing the difference between the abuse uh, of children and the strategy of genocide. Yes, and they aren't the same thing. You know, one of the things that you know we can look at what individuals did to other individuals and then, you know, create or cast a judgment on, you know, on the atrocity uh, as a crime against children. But you have to understand that these, the goal of these schools was to, was to destroy us. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was literally, I mean, the definitions of genocide and and I got to go through this all the time because when you actually read the international definitions of genocide, Mm -hmm. You would almost think that the, that they developed that, those definitions based on, re, on, on these boarding schools. Well, and let me wow. quickly just run through it. This genocide means any of the following acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, such as killing members of the group. Well, that happened at residential schools, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. Yes, that happened. Deliberately inflicting upon the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction. Well, that's what forced assimilation is. Yes. Imposing measures to prevent births. Girls were sterilized in these. these, uh, And the whole act of the residential schools was geared towards minimizing and reducing our population. And of course, the final of those five You know, criteria, and and any one of them is genocide, is forcibly removing children from a group to another group. Well, I mean, it sounds like genocide was almost defined based on what the United States and Canada did to to Native children. And I got to clarify one other thing. Mm -hmm. The Pope did not apologize for the role that the church played. It didn't apologize for the church, for the Vatican, for any of the Pope's Not only um, who who sat idly by while while essentially the clergy sex abuse uh, problem was either began or certainly grew within in in this atmosphere. He apologized for Christians. He made it sound like like this was just about bad actors, you know, that. Yeah. I apologize for the role that Christians played. In other words, that this is like bad apples. This is what they do with police, right? They say, Oh, it's not the problem with the police, the the system. We just have bad apples. Well, and that's, that's what the Pope did. And I'm sorry, that's, that's insulting. That's insulting for that Pope to stand there and with all of his praise and people putting a freaking uh, war bonnet on his head and, and all of this stuff to, to listen to him deflect, because he made it sound like yes we just have bad christians amongst us yep. no the church i mean let's let's be honest here the role of the doctrine of christian discovery is preeminent in what in the genocide that was committed you know th- for the last 500 years mm-hmm. i mean these these residential schools which which operated for almost 150 years was just one phase of that genocide but that genocide was not just Um, authorized. It was called upon by the church. I mean, the church was literally in the, in the end. Well, and it was, it wasn't just about giving the Christian nations of Europe the permission. It was giving them the orders to do so. They said, you have to go out there and spread Christendom and you need to, you know, to search out these, these, uh, these enemies of Christ because if, if you weren't you know a Christian you were considered an enemy and that's the, and those are words from the from previous popes mm-hmm. and and when i hear the, the this pope or or even previous popes say well we don't really follow um that doctrine of christian discovery is not really in place anymore because of um papal bulls that came out yeah but you never rescinded it and 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 you certainly never repudiated it because now the doctrine of christian discovery and not now, but for you know, since the 1830s it has been uh, codified into us law mm-hmm. and Canadian law and, and many other places. So, I mean, if the church won't stand up and say, look, we have to take responsibility for not just the role that Christians played in colonialism, but the role the church played in colonialism, they, they pushed that. I mean, for, from the very start with Christopher Columbus and, or even before that going into Western Africa, So I, you know, I am deeply disturbed by any praise that this Pope is getting Mm -hmm. for this deflection. And, you know, and even when I hear, you know, that while the the church is supposed to be paying $30 million, um, they agreed to pay that or or somehow out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Look, $30 million is nothing. I mean, it it is such a small amount of money to to address uh, essentially 150 years of genocide. And, and while I don't believe this responsibility rests solely on the church, it's certainly the, the church provided the platform for residential schools to exist in the first place. And then lo and behold, they get to be, uh, they get hired to, to operate these things. Yeah. The other thing that, that, uh, that this Pope neglected, he never once mentioned sexual abuse. You know, he, he mentioned abuse and, and almost, and again, when the time I hear people right. reduce, mm-hmm. reduce this to cultural genocide, this wasn't cultural genocide. For one thing, there's no freaking thing. Such thing as cultural genocide. If you try to eliminate a people by destroying their culture, that's not cultural genocide. It's, it's genocide. genocide. Yep. You know? And so when you put a precursor in front of something, it's, it's like, you're trying to soften it. Oh, well, you know, this wasn't like, mass murder. Yes, it was. There were, there were probably 10,000 children who uh, who who died in those residential schools Jeez. on the Canadian side alone in, in these unmarked grades. And when, God. when there's a final tally on the U S side, it'll probably be over 50,000 on the U S. Oh, side. My God. So when I hear, when I hear Deb Hall say, well, you know, right now we know that there's been 500, de- 500 deaths. That's one school. You can attribute that to Carlisle Indian school just by itself. So God. I mean, look, there has to be a real reckoning. That that BS Truth and Reconciliation Commission that Canada, you know, tried to pull off, was was really a joke because they didn't implement any of the recommendations that came out of that commission. They they I mean, most of these these unmarked graves are being discovered by the native people themselves. They've, right. they've been forced to hire engineers to come in with ground penetrating radar
0: because Canada won't do it. Well, let me ask you about that. If, if you don't mind my, my interrupting you, when I first, when I first started doing this show, um, uh, Bob Schleyhuber had, had just left and I, I came on and you were one of the first guests that we had when I, when I joined the, uh, the team. And one of the things we talked about was how these graves were unmarked, there, that there were thousands of children that, that had uh, died and were buried uh, privately, secretly, surreptitiously in these graves. And we talked about the process needing to begin to identify these children. Nothing has been done. Why has nothing been done? What are we waiting for to try to, to identify these children and to give them proper uh, burials? Well, there's also the,
2: not just identifying There's to fully enumerate. I mean,
0: that's right. We don't even even know how many.
2: Yeah, you're right. They've only, they've only looked at about seven, you know, I think less than a dozen of these uh, these schools and they're already at, at numbers in, in the thousands. So, I mean, I, and I don't know what you do when you di- when you finally um, uh, uh, confirm that these are mass graves. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, as I sit here as a Native person, I'm not sure that you, you dig them up.
0: Uh-huh.
2: I mean, and I don't know. I mean, I can't imagine the process of trying to identify um, children who are not being properly identified in the first place. Let, let's face it. This whole system was about removing our identity that's right so these are just as far as canada and the church is concerned these are just bodies yeah now the, uh, the families know many of them who who did and didn't return from these schools but you know what the the the, the atmosphere that uh, that was created by canada and the united states for native territories the abject poverty the you know the the way that alcohol was used in treaty yes. negotiation, and became such a dominant part of the substance abuse problem that exists on our territories. Look, mm-hmm. I mean, part of the justification for residential schools was to say that you know that our our territories were not good places to raise children. Well, you created that situation in the first place, right? So it's you know it's so I don't know what the solution is, but I do know that there has to be enumeration. There has to be some numbers that that really quantify this stuff and. And I think that as, as families uh, list children that never returned, they have to be the, the bulk of the evidence about who is who. And, 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 right. you know, I don't know, I, again, I don't know, I, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine the morbid nature of, of digging up, digging up these, these, um, these children. And, and, and part of me from a cultural standpoint says, no, they've in, in my culture, we say we, we return to our mother. Regardless of where those kids' original territories are from, and regardless of how, you know, the, the atrocity associated with not just unmarked graves, but mass graves, mm-hmm. um, they have returned to their mother as far as our culture goes. Mm-hmm. So I'm, you know, I'm indifferent, and I know people have different feelings about whether each individual child should be. Uh, identified and returned to you know for a quote unquote proper burial, you know frankly some of that gets cr- Christianized as well. Right, but I mean this is, I mean this is problematic. And and again when I see the deflection and the distraction created by all the pomp and circumstance associated with with a papal visit, I mean it just makes me throw up in my mouth. I mean let, let's keep in mind here that this pope was a part of uh, um, confirmed. Sarah as a saint. That's right. That's absolutely true. And this is a guy who was responsible for the deaths of of thousands of children personally. I mean, and as far as Sarah was concerned, once they were baptized, they saved their souls. It didn't matter if their bodies perished. That's right. And and this is the these this is how they enumerated their their responsibility to to native people. Well, how many souls do we save? Not not. And and again, keep in mind. The policy associated both in the U S and Canada was kill the Indian, save the man. Mm -hmm. And, and while they might claim, well, we meant kill the, the primitive nature of these, of these children. So a real man could, uh, you know, could come out the other side. They may say that, but when you consider how many people died, how many children died, you know, that, that, that death was, was not just a, um, I mean, it was part of the goal. Yeah. I mean, we experienced the largest period of land loss, population loss, and autonomy loss during that one hundred and fifty years of, of residential schools. That was the plan. I mean that that wasn't just, you know um something that happened right you know fallout. as a yeah, that wasn't a fallout. that was the that was the goal of this stuff, right. And the church was all about this. The church initiated much of the language and and then when you you realize how across the board this gets, I mean, then you see that, by you know, by the native people who lined up to you know to pander to the Pope. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg cited the Doctrine of Christian Discovery in 2005 in a case that she wrote the opinion on, relating to dismissing uh, a, a claim by the Oneidas in in New York State. I mean, wow. this is, I mean, that's how broad based. I mean, the this the influence of the Church becomes codified in law. The Church isn't just a victim of um, of having to, uh, just having to happen to run these schools, they were hired and, and they dictated some of what t- took place in these schools. I mean, frankly, they dictated all. Mm-hmm. They actually had power of attorney over these children. Oh my God. And here's the other thing I want to talk about. There were, the sex abuse, the sexual abuse, t- actually um, caused many unwanted pregnancies. So when I listen to the churches, And the Catholic Church, in particular, on this issue of abortion, there—I mean—we'll never know how many infants were Mm -hmm, were killed, mm -hmm. how many abortions were committed, how many how many you know children uh, or children gave birth to children only to have those babies um, incinerated and that kind of stuff. And we know how do we know that stuff happened? Well, because that's what our people witnessed. Right. And and you know, as much as you know, there'll there'll be those that will want to dismiss these these atrocities. You can't dismiss it. Many of the children who died in these schools were killed. Many of them died because of neglect. And many of them died because of of, of the failure to give proper medical attention to these kids. Many of them died because of malnutrition. Many of them died trying to escape these schools. This is all the outcome of the atrocities that these schools represented. And and I think whatever when I listened to some of the words that I heard this pope speak, uh, it it just infuriated me.
0: We've got about a minute and a half left. Uh, John, what are the next steps, do you think, uh, on this issue? The the Canadian government, in my amateur view, seems to be dragging its feet. Uh, what do you think they need to do next? Well, I mean,
2: one of the things that came out of the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which I think was a very flawed process in the first place, was a whole list of action items uh-huh. that that were a part of the report. Canada has done none of them. I mean so yeah I I think doing a full investigation on uh on locating and identifying these these uh these burials mass graves unmarked graves and you know including some of the marked graves I mean this is you know th- that should be the easy mm-hmm. stuff to sure. to enumerate but you know here but again and I can't emphasize this enough there are two levels of atrocity here yes there are crimes committed by individuals against individuals and that's the stuff that everybody's talking about. No, again, nobody's talking about the fact that this was genocide. So yeah. there's a, the victims of these crimes are children, those who d- didn't survive, and those who did survive. You know, when they say kill the Indians, save the men, I would argue that that they all were killed, some.
0: I'm sorry that we're out of time and, and we have a hard end uh, to the hour. John Kane, thanks for joining us. John's a native Mohawk activist and educator. He's the producer and host of the Let's Talk Native podcast. You can hear him there. And he's co-host of Resistance Radio on WBAI Pacifica Radio in New York. You're listening to Political Misfits. Stay tuned. We'll be back for our second hour. Politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. The Federal Reserve is expected to hike the federal funds rate today by three quarters of a percentage point to 2.4%. That's a mile marker of sorts because many economists say it's a level that no longer encourages economic growth. And remember, just over four months ago, the federal funds rate was almost zero. The whole point of this is to bring inflation under control, and some economists are predicting that the Fed will actually increase rates by a full percentage point today. We'll see what happens. Pundits pundits are talking about a hard landing or a soft landing, but we should put those words in human terms. Higher interest rates will slow the economy. Sure, they're supposed to tame inflation, too, but does low inflation matter when you've just lost your job? We're joined by Steve Grumbine, founder and CEO of the nonprofits Real Progressives and Real Progress in Action and host of the podcast Macro and Cheese. He's also a leading activist and evangelist for modern monetary theory. Steve, always good to have you. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, John. Oh, and I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Steve, reading the financial papers today, it was like a throwback to 1979 or 1980 when I was a paper boy. We're going to see another huge jump in interest rates, and the talk is all about inflation. Is that what we should be focusing on? What's your opinion?
3: No, I, I mean, look, I, this is tough. I, I, I had this real energetic response waiting to happen, John. <laughs> and, you know, I, I recognize that this is hard for people to get their head wrapped around. Mm-hmm. OK, all of our lives, we've been told that inflation is a result of printing money. Mm-hmm. We have Zimbabwe thrown at us. We right. have Venezuela thrown at us. We have Weimar Republic thrown at us. And, and we always go to this. And this is Milton Friedman was king pen of explaining that to us. So for better than a half a century, way more than half a century, I mean, go back to the 60s. We're talking about, what, 60 years now, right? Mm-hmm. So we've got 60 years of neoliberal thought. That has been pumped into our school systems, pumped into our government, pumped into our media. I I even jokingly, uh, it's not a joke, but I jokingly used the return of Roseanne Barr a few years ago when they brought Roseanne out of the, you know, back into the mainstream. And the very first episode was right after uh, the uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, Bernie Sanders famous primary. And uh, Roseanne starts the show off fighting with her sister saying, hey, you know, you, the only problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. Right. And her sister had right. voted for Jill Stein, apparently. So this thinking is very deeply rooted in everything from our the churches to our schools to our comic books, even even Marvel superheroes. All these things are reinforcing this narrative. It's almost impossible to get away from. But the fact is, is that. Inflation is brought on by a number of things, not the least of which, ironically, is raising interest rates, because you're literally creating an inflated cost of credit. So right off the bat, you're starting with killing inflation with creating inflation. okay? Okay. The other thing is that they're also, because they don't know of any other way, it's like bleeding the patient. They come in with a blunt force object to say, hey, in order to curb inflation, we also now have to create unemployment. So between raising interest rates and creating unemployment, none of this has said anything about why we have inflation. And, And the inflation that we're looking at here is, number one, we've got a shortage of the most ubiquitously needed product in the world right now, and that is petroleum products, not just refined gasoline, but oil products and other lubricants that petroleum products are found in. So whenever you've got a scarcity there, it touches everything. It drives costs up. The other thing is during the middle of a pandemic, we had supply chains breakdown. What do you do when you have supply chains breaking? And you have bad bottlenecks in the infrastructure. Your highway systems aren't right. Your train systems aren't right. What do you do to fix that? Do you cut spending or do you invest in improving your infrastructure? Right. Well, <laughs> it's a stupid question because there's only one right answer there, but you get the point. But there, the thought is, is that because we printed money, which isn't a thing, by the way, but because they say we printed money, therefore we have to stop doing that. And we have to cut back on it. So Biden's out there touting what $2 trillion in deficit reduction. This is literally the things that kill and create a recession, which I know we're going to talk about a little later. Yeah. So all the things that you see that you're hearing about with the Fed doing, this is like taking – a small child and beating them over the head with a baseball bat and saying they'll improve. And, and, and that's literally the worst possible answer.
0: Yeah. Agreed. It's the long answer, but that's the no, no, answer. No, no, <laughs> no. I appreciate it. We're, we're told that the Fed's goal of course, is to get inflation to 2% or lower. And that to do that, we may see another huge interest rate increase again in September. Um, is, would that be the right move? Another increase would put us in that restrictive range where the economy would be expected to shrink. But isn't that where even more damage is done? Let me ask you a question. Do you discipline
3: the little people and keep them from purchasing things they need? Right. Or do you go ahead and deploy solutions on the other side right. by instituting price caps Or or regulation instead of, hey, if we don't have enough fuel in the the United States right now to service our needs to keep prices at a level that we need it, what would prevent the president from using his emergency powers to go ahead and put a temporary embargo on exporting of oil to make sure that we have enough in this country? This is the problem yeah. right now is that we put all the discipline on labor, the discipline on consumers, the discipline on families, as opposed to the discipline on big business and the discipline on the regulatory environment and the regulatory framework that can control abusive market power. But instead, we keep making life harder yeah. for regular people. It's true. And and it, it, this whole concept of what the Fed's trying to do is a monetarist viewpoint of the world. They see interest rates and bonds as the be-all end-all. But these things happen after the spending. We don't fund our government with bonds. So bonds are really a relic of the gold standard era. We could eliminate them. We could drop back down to a 0% interest rate. We could invest in the infrastructure, fix that stuff. We could put curbs on the export of oil to prevent them from making a scarcity in this country mm-hmm. by just simply having a decent federal energy policy, or at least a temporary one under emergency orders to fix it after a mm-hmm. pandemic, none of which will they do because it's an ideological stronghold. Neoliberalism has a belief of laissez-faire markets, and we are always going to be the people they discipline, always.
0: Well, why, why is it that we we aren't considering uh, price caps. You know Nixon Nixon did it in the seventies and and it worked. Yep. So why not do yeah. it again?
3: Yeah. Well,
0: you think about this. Um, go back
3: to the fifties and the Mount Pelerin Society mm-hmm. as Milton Friedman and his gang of Chicago school folks Right. were getting their hooks in everything. You saw what they did with Pinochet and Chile. You saw what they've done with Volker these guys, it's taken years for them to really, really exact the price that they needed to exact. But this is all with the intent of destroying the gains made by the new deal. Mm -hmm. This is all about destroying the concept of the public purpose. Remember Margaret Thatcher's famous line, there is no public money. There is only taxpayer dollars. Mm -hmm. And so this mantra this lie, by the way, because there is no such thing as taxpayer dollars, only public money. They, she got it completely backwards, right? And so if you understand that, then it starts to fundamentally unravel every one of these things they're telling yeah. us. Literally, I, I, this is an a earth-shattering thing. I've said it on this program several times. I'm going to say it one more. The goal of taxation by the federal government is not to fund itself because it creates its own money. The issue for taxation is to provision itself by creating a need for the currency. You have to pay your taxes in U.S. dollars. This is how the government gets us into motion. But more recently, since the takeover of the corporate sector over our government, mm-hmm. capture of our institutions, now that discipline is there for us, so that we will be good, compliant workers for corporate America. Right. And this is the this is the rationale. So when you go back to Nixon. While some of this stuff was brewing underneath the surface, while it w- but it was still nascent. It was still a, just the a beginning phases of the neoliberal project. I mean, neoliberalism really took off right after World War II when we tried to attack communism and try to block Joseph Stalin. I like calling him Joe Stalin. You know, they, they try to block that from happening by creating the, the Peace Corps and the World Trade Organization and the IMF and the World Bank and all these things to create this neoliberal project that was counter to communism and socialism. So every structure, every single bit of government propaganda has been to keep us away from social uh, beliefs in our in society, to keep us away from the public purpose, to eradicate what is considered the public space and only have the private space. So Biden would literally have to violate the very tenets of neoliberalism to embrace price caps. And Nixon didn't have that burden yet. It hadn't really taken right. it off in the way that it has
0: today. Right. Steve, the White House is adamant. Uh, and we heard this again this morning from the president. The White House is adamant that the economy is not entering a recession. The president is asked about it regularly, and he always says the same thing. There is no recession on the horizon. The media aren't so sanguine, but today's New York Times says that it's impossible to say if we're heading into a recession. What are your thoughts?
3: It's super simple to see some of these things, Okay, It's called sectoral balances, Okay, And if you go to the St. Louis Fed, you can go pull up their their sectoral balances. And what sectoral balances do is they look at the balance of payments for uh, the rest of the world. That's sector one. Mm-hmm. They look at the public debt. That's sector two. Public debt being the federal government's ability to issue dollars. And then they look at private debt. Those are the three things, okay? Private debt is starting to blow up. People are trying to take on more and more private debt to survive, mm-hmm. to fill the, back, the, hole, the, hole, the hole in the economy, that the federal government's job should be there to, to provide for the general welfare, to, to, to enhance the public purpose. And they're failing on that. So when you look at that, you realize, number one, private debt's going up. People are going to get maxed out. They won't be able to take on any more debt. Add in August 31st as student debt starts kicking back in, okay? Right. If Biden doesn't get rid of that altogether, people like myself who have $126,000 of student debt will suddenly have a $1,000 a month monthly payment on their shoulders that they have to deal with out of nowhere, okay? Yeah. Now. You're a family. You have a choice. You either pay your house, like Senkara says. I can either pay you or, or we can die, which isn't going to be. I'm choosing to survive. We're going to survive. We're not going to pay that debt. So, you know, all these things are coming up. And the, the definition of a recession is lack of growth, negative GDP, negative growth. And we've got that. To, we have a real legitimate textbook definition of a recession now. They're They're playing fast and loose with terminologies. But trust me when I say this. GDP is an indiscriminate judge of all, all Mm -hmm. financial transactions. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, that means disaster payments. That means foreclosures are part of GDP. That means student debt, uh, you know, is part of GDP. It means all these things are part of GDP. And they're not productive GDP. They're not productive for the economy. They don't help any of us. Okay. Right. So if you think about what I'm saying, this becomes uglier by the second. And the idea that we're not entering into a recession is a very, very privileged position to take for those people who are sitting in the capboard seat, collecting the additional monies brought on by the interest rate hikes. Because yeah. think about it, those interest rate hikes, one person's spending is another person's income. Yeah, that's that's right. an accounting identity. It's a truth. So that interest payment is going somewhere. Okay, it's not going to the federal government. The federal government doesn't need that interest payment taxes when it takes taxes, it deletes them. So what does that mean? That means somebody rich is getting more money. It's exacerbating the wealth gap. So when you see this, this is this is literally the rich trying to take a bite out of what they thought was the little people getting over by getting some pandemic relief. We got to get a piece of that. How do we get a piece of that? Let's go and raise interest rates. Yeah. And, and that's what you're seeing here. And you know what? Somebody can tell me I'm wrong. I'm, if, if I'm wrong, I, I won't buy it. I don't believe it for a second. I mean, the, 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 the issue is all these bonds and all these interest rate hikes are, are in essence, a basic income for people who already have money. That's what that is. And so this whole approach, every, every bit of this is a, a true class war. True, honest to God, austerity is murder kind of behavior. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's devastating. I, I hope I didn't bore you with that, but that's no, no, really what's on my mind.
0: And, and I'm glad that you I'm glad that you explained it that way because that, that's exactly how I feel. I want to expand that actually. It seems to me that the world's economies are almost too interconnected to be able to plan independently. The IMF, for example, said today that it expects a global recession in the coming months. Is it that U.S. actions could push the world into recession, or is it that U.S. actions are secondary to what's happening in the rest of the world? Does the Fed really control what's happening in the U.S. economy, or is it more global and uh, and interdependent?
3: So the boogeyman of the Federal Reserve is a construct of conspirators yes. going back to 1913. Yes, indeed. Okay? imagine the fed sitting in the passenger seat with a kid toy steering wheel with you all going on vacation. That's, that's the fed. Okay. (laughs) But because the, you know, people have gotten so caught up in the Rothschild libel and all the other things that went on, these guys have got it in their head. The fact is there's two separate forms of the world. There's fiscal policy that is a direct behavior from Congress, and then there in the United States, and we can talk about the rest of the world if we want for a minute. But the the Fed, all they control is interest rates. That's that's it. They they literally mm-hmm. control interest mm-hmm. rates and debt management of of those bonds, bond servicing, and and interest rates. So when you think about it, the real factor here is Congress can pass a spending bill tomorrow to literally put into motion, whatever needs to be done. That's in the United States. But on a global scale, many of these countries have been lured into debt arrangements with the IMF to be able to, quote unquote, become good, proper capitalist countries that can be hospitable markets for global corporations, Mm -hmm. multinational corporations. And that is the goal of the World Bank, the IMF, etc., since Joseph Stalin and them decided they were enemies after the end of World War II. And that has been what's going on. So when you think about what the U.S. government can do, many countries, because they don't have the strength of production, they don't have the resilient economy, they will peg their currency to the United States dollar. Well, the ebbs and flows of the United States dollar have tremendous impacts on other countries who have to have enough foreign Deserves to cover their U.S.-denominated debts. And so that means that they have to do many things that they maybe wouldn't otherwise do. And so this definitely impacts them. But it doesn't have to. There are ways around that. And guys like Farol Kaboub, who is the president of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, and a phenomenal Tunisian economist who works in third-world countries and works with people like Ndongo Sambasilla um, you know, out of Africa. These, these are guys that are really really, really driving the point home that there are ways around IMF loans, that there are ways around buying into the neoliberal project. Uh, Guys (laughs) like Pakistani uh, economist Akhaz Afsal, We'll talk to you about these groups need to come together and build trading blocks together to avoid the presence of U.S. imperialism. So there's many things that could be done, but because they don't understand this and they're trapped in the neoliberal paradigm themselves, coupled with a an, uh, a military that's saying, do this or die. Yeah. OK, these guys literally are stuck in a neoliberal debt trap that makes them, by extension, basically neocolonial. You know, properties, if you will. We're no, the countries are no longer there with their white safari hats on from Great Britain and Africa. It's now instead this neoliberal construct of the IMF, and of course, you've got all the destabilization that I'm sure you're well aware of with our CIA and other things. Sure, uh, that that go into these countries to create conditions that make them take deals. I mean, you you know, go back. I don't know how much of its salation or not, but I, I tend to think you know confessions of the economic hitman right. tell us an awful lot, and and if you think about that, you understand the role that the U.S. dollar plays in that because but it, but it's not a death lock. They have choices and they just don't understand them. So hopefully, these great economists that understand who are out there working like al Kabouf, who I absolutely admire in a way that brings tears to my eyes. I mean, he's doing God's work right now. Okay, he's out there just trying so hard. I mean, it's like beat your head into a brick yeah. wall trying to explain the stuff to people. <laughs> but, uh, but that's, what's happening right here is ultimately United States government through its arm, uh, great arm of the IMF and other things have really played a, you know, a sigh up on these other countries to make them believe that there is no alternative, but you're seeing alternatives, sadly, in the wrong way with this division because of Ukraine and Russia, you're watching a balkanization of the world be split into the white countries and the non-white countries. And and this concept of, you know, cooperation that you see with Russia, China, and the others versus this concept of predation within the NATO space is really Mm -hmm. terrifying. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think this story goes deeper than just inflation or not inflation. I think it really is a geopolitical thing. It's not necessarily an economic one, uh, MMT, while it is a, a theory of fiat currency is not a theory of all things. So it doesn't always explain everything that's going on here, Sure, but you can certainly assess the ballot sheets to understand what's going on and what's going on is massive amounts of predation because they don't understand there is an alternative.
0: Steve, I, I want to ask you about something that I don't, uh, fully understand, uh, What do you think the the latest economic news means for the stock market? And the reason why I'm asking you about the stock market is that some economists are warning right now that a big crash is coming because of high inflation, high interest rates, and a slowing housing market. But that the crash isn't necessarily going to be in the stock market. They're saying that it could be in the bond market. Can you explain how that would happen and why that's so important? Yeah,
3: I I don't fully. understand why they would say it, because the bond market is the most secure thing ever. Yeah, okay? right. And when the U.S. government sells a bond, when it, it sells that bond, it sells it with certain terms and conditions and it pre-funds it so it knows, you have to buy a U.S. bonds, by the way, in U.S. dollars. You can't buy them in yen, won, mm. remnibi. You can't do it in pounds. You have to buy it in U.S. dollars. So obviously what's happening is, at least the intent of this originally was to remove buying power, to, to, to provide a safe uh, investment that earns a nominal interest rate, like a savings account. So think of bonds largely as savings accounts at the Fed or at the Treasury. These savings accounts are there right. to delay purchasing power at least that's the way it was started right like we sold war bonds during world war ii why why did we sell them was it to finance the war no we had already financed the war the reason we sold them was because our factories were operating at 110 percent capacity while simultaneously you had people that wanted to buy things and there was nothing to buy so what happens when you have People going after these things with their extra money because they've been working round the clock, they're putting in overtime, they're working crazy hours and getting more money than usual. Yeah. So what happens? If there's nothing to buy, then you'll have then you will have inflation. That's the scarcity. That's when demand is outpacing supply. Okay. So what did they do? They sold war bonds to prevent these kinds of purchases during a time where all the factories needed to be pointed to the war effort. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. at least that's the thinking. So if you think about the bond market today, what is the bond market serving? It is simply a safe bet for people that have U.S. dollars that don't know what to do with them, that, that want something that is low risk, in, in, in zero risk, et cetera. Um, so to me, I wouldn't sweat the bond market. Um, it, it, it's the one thing that we have absolute control over, right? We set the terms of the bonds. We okay. set the terms of those. And in my opinion, based on my studies and based on the people that I respect, we should stop selling long-term treasury bonds and stuff. We should stop pretending that we have to sell bonds to offset spending. And we should use get rid of the interest on reserves and all the other things like that. I really believe that these are ways of making sure that the rich stay rich, no matter how bad the economy is. and And really, this bond market thing... I will tell you this, unfortunately, a lot of pensions and a lot of other things invest in the bond market Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that they can deal with the ebbs and flows of the larger stock market. But the fire sector itself is where all this money goes. It doesn't make it to Main Street. It goes to people who already have money that are willing to take a chance and risk and invest. And, And this is the casino that has become the United States economy. So as long as the casino is blowing, that counts as part of GDP, right? right? So it gives a false positive that the economy is doing just great. But I can tell you right now, me, myself, and I, I have no investments. So I don't have any money to invest in. And I think most people are living hand to mouth. So this right. false positive in the stock market doing well and see people talking, about, oh, my lithium, blah, blah, blah. Oh, this, <laughs> this is not real. It's, 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 it's a fake thing, man. I mean, I'm sure there's aspects of it that are real, but a guy named Eric Dean, great economist, uh, is going to be working at this Torrens University in Australia teaching MMT. He talked about how corporations have become nothing more than a giant stock portfolio, that they're not even producing anything. They're just a big portfolio to manage, a money market to manage. And when stock A doesn't work, they just cut it away. And there goes all those jobs until somebody picks it up on pennies on the dollar. Mm-hmm. And this is what our world has become. So when you look at the stock market, when you look at the bond market, it's important to understand that if you're buying U.S. bonds, there's nothing to prevent the U.S. government from funding. what it, When you sign that bond, you bought it 3% or whatever. That's the terms of that bond.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: You're talking about bond vigilantes not being able to sell for all oh, cry me a river, old man river. Yep. You know I mean? yep. <laughs> it, right. Big deal. I, I, I'm not going to lose an ounce of sleep over that guy yeah. not getting that, that. So I don't know if that's the answer you're looking for.
0: No, <laughs> oh, no, no. It's awesome. We hear a lot of politicians uh, in Congress uh, talking about uh, trying to get a hold of, uh, of inflation. Uh, several members of Congress have been very vocal about passing legislation that they say would tame inflation. But there hasn't been any action. Does this even matter? Is there anything that that Congress can do to address inflation? Or is this something that uh, that's just going to either have to run its course or we have to allow the Fed to wreck the economy to bring it under control?
3: Okay. Just remember, inflation. Are we talking about supply chains? If we're talking about supply chains, you got to go ahead and invest in infrastructure. Yes. That will take care of supply chain-driven inflation. Indeed. If we're talking about uh, people having... Uh, too much money, so to speak, to spend, and not enough goods and services. You want to enhance production. If 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 it's it's never a matter of quote unquote printing money. And I want to finish that thought because it's super important. Yeah, taxes delete currency. So even when the government spends, taxes will pull that out. It's gone. So the only thing that puts more money in is a spending bill. However, if there's a taxing bill, the money gets gotten rid of. And we know money has a natural helium effect. So it goes up to the top where it circles around in the fire sector. Okay, so what can Congress do? Congress can institute price controls where people are gouging. They can go ahead and invest heavily in uh, actual regulatory environments that keep corporations from using a piece of market power. They can remember what it's like to trust bust. They can remember what it's like to go after monopolies. They can remember those things. They can literally prevent foreign investment in the real estate market. They could literally do all those things, but they're not doing it. Why? Because it goes back to the very first thing I said on this call, neoliberalism. And it's an ideology that this president embraces fully and that the Democratic Party and Republican Party in joint love fest celebrate to the high heavens. Yep. So. You know, crucify me for being an honest truth teller, but that's the deal. I wish I could say the Democrats are the good guys, but they each are different evil and they both work hand in glove in making this dystopian world that we're in a reality.
0: See, that's I always say in response to people who tell me that I'm throwing away my vote by voting for a third party, that I'm better off and the country is better off just choosing the lesser of two evils. And my response has always been that the lesser of two evils is still evil. And so we, we you know, yeah. forcing ourselves into a box of one party or the other, to me, is wasting your vote. Uh, I agree with you. They're both flawed.
3: Think about this for a minute, if you will. It, it, you know, sometimes it's better to flip the coin in the football game and shoot choose- to defend instead of receive, Yeah, right? yeah, that's Sometimes right. Sometimes we make a decision that it's better to play defense. When you have a feckless corpse and a cop like Kamala Harris and Joe Biden as your people that you're putting up there, mm-hmm. and then you have three quarters of the bourgeois Karens of the world going back to sleep, and lo and behold, while they were in slumber, Roe v. Wade got pulled out from under him, right? Mm-hmm. So ultimately, You're going to have different forms of evil coming up, and it's a matter of which evil you're willing to tolerate. In the end, the poor lose no matter who's in office. Yeah. And so to me, I look at it this way. We had nine-tenths of America backing us up in united opposition to Trump's bigotry and some of the more strident, crazy, religious-type things that he put Mm -hmm. forward with the religious right. People were united to push back on that. Where are those people now united in the same instead of build the wall, we're now increasing border security yeah. Yeah. instead of, you know, what I mean, like all these different ways of saying the same thing. So at the end of the day, we just lost three quarters of the army. Mind you, they're not a permanent army. Those are centrist. They go back to sleep yep. when Democrats are in office. So to me. I think that we lost by winning, so to speak, if you know what I mean.
0: We're going to leave it there. That was the voice of Steve Grumbine. He's the founder and CEO of the nonprofit's Real Progressives and Real Progress in Action and host of the podcast Macro and Cheese. He's also a leading activist and evangelist for modern monetary theory. You're listening to Political Misfits. We're going to take one more break and come back. So stay tuned. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill are scrambling to pass affordable housing legislation after Democratic Senator Joe Manchin killed a larger overall bill that would have included provisions for affordable housing. Lawmakers from both parties want to boost tax credits that incentivize builders to construct cheaper homes for lower-income families in order to offset the huge markups that builders get for luxury homes. The problem, though, is that state and local leaders don't want to build affordable housing because it often depresses land values and drags down tax revenues, which in turn then hurts funding for public schools. We're joined by Ron Kluwer. He is the Illinois Market President of Gorman & Company and an affordable housing advocate. Welcome back, Ron. Hey,
4: how are you today?
0: Doing well, thanks, and thanks so much for joining us. I want to uh, start, if I may, with... It's just a, a very short story. My neighborhood, I live in Arlington, Virginia. My neighborhood is home to an affordable housing development. My neighbors fought it in court for years, for eight years. And they finally went all the way up to the Supreme Court of Virginia and they lost. And, it, and they, the, uh, the county built this affordable housing apartment building. Um, it turns out that this building is beautiful and it's well-kept, and you would never have any idea that it was any different from any other building in the neighborhood. In nearby Alexandria, Virginia, an affordable housing development was built in an expensive historic neighborhood in Old Town. It wasn't kept up very well. The neighborhood's dangerous, and now people avoid it. How can one project be so successful and another one nearby be a failure? How do we prevent this kind of thing from happening? Or really, is it even possible to prevent it from happening?
4: You know, it is. And I think it um, goes back to the source. So when I say the source, it's A, the financial source, and B, the developer or you know operator as a source. I, I, I think the push to move tax credits is important in our industry. It's one of the largest tools in the creation of affordable housing. It also does come with a number of caveats, including you must be an experienced developer building Mm. in order to achieve a tax credit award, and you're subject to annual audits of both financial um, documents, but also physical condition of the property. So, you know, unfortunately, all affordable housing projects aren't uh, created equally, And I don't know, you know, the difference in funding streams, but I'm guessing the one in your neighborhood very likely could have been a tax credit project Mm. as substantial, um, you know, deed restrictions on it for operations has, you know, substantial legal documents for operating um, agreements and has to perform. Right. Yeah. I think um, that's one. The other is it could be privately built. And then perhaps, you know, they put vouchers on the project to make the units affordable, help the operator keep revenue up. But with that, you know, unless you have an active and engaged housing authority or jurisdiction that's providing the vouchers who are holding the landlord's feet to the fire, including doing annual inspections... It's possible that, you know, the, the safeguards just aren't there like a tech project or a low-income housing tax credit project. Oh, interesting. You could see those challenges. And so all deals are not created equal and all, you know, unfortunately, all property management companies are not created equal. So I, I think just one comment in your opening remarks, you indicated that oftentimes these could depress property values. And what mm-hmm. we find is for the one that you're mentioning in your neighborhood, it very likely has not changed your property value at all. In fact, Oh no. Right.
0: Yeah. In fact, property values have continued to skyrocket. You look at this building and let me, I'll give you a little bit of background there. There's a church that was built around the turn of the 20th century uh, in the neighborhood. And the, the, Leaders of the church said, look, you know, we're supposed to be Christians. We're supposed to um, take care of our fellow man. We own the air rights above the church. So why don't we build low income housing above the church? And uh, they went through this eight years of litigation. They finally won. So the church now is on the the first floor and they kept the steeple. And then where there was just air is now 10 floors of um, of luxury apartments. And it's one block from the subway. It's one block from the Trader Joe's. It is absolutely beautiful. And the residents of this building have kept it in absolutely pristine condition. It's, it's, it's an asset to the neighborhood. You go to Old Town Alexandria, and honestly, you know they, they tried to uh, build it um, as townhouses, and it looks like a housing project.
4: Yeah. And, and and that's the challenge I think the you know there's often a lot of um, scrutiny on the cost to build affordable housing but if we're building it right and you know my day job and all disclosure is an affordable housing developer but if we build it right a when somebody drives by and looks at it they should go wow that's one heck of a building
0: yeah I live there
4: right right b around us should say wow that's one heck of a building thank God it's in our neighborhood right and then the residents who live there you know now have achieved a a more stable quality of life which lowers costs to all other social systems mm-hmm. but the the other piece of that is in order to achieve that where everybody's winning it's higher cost than perhaps even traditional market rate apartments and and it's because of these restrictions that we have on the buildings, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have them by any means, we absolutely should be held accountable that the building is operating under the financial projections we said it would. We absolutely should uh, right, be as best as every other building in the neighborhood or better, because we should be a good neighbor and we should be contributing to a positive um, presence in the neighborhood as opposed to you know, being a detriment to the neighborhood.
0: That's absolutely right. Uh, Let's talk about these tax credits for a minute. What legislators on Capitol Hill are trying to pass uh, is this series of tax credits. That's a great idea because it's a great incentive. But is it enough to actually get the housing built? Uh, Are there other things that legislators should be doing right now in addition to tax credits?
4: No, there are. And again, the tax credit is the biggest tool in the toolbox for affordable housing. It also makes sure that, you know, we're building the most quality affordable housing and operating it, um, you know, to a very positive uh, set of guidelines. However, um, you know, we're seeing, like everybody else, significant change in the market. Construction costs are crazy. Interest rates going up. Although, admittedly, interest rates have been depressed and, and unusually low for a very long time. So we're we're going back to maybe a norm. However, it does it does add cost to the project as a result. And so, the tax credit is not the only tool. Unfortunately, with all these other challenges on top of. What are usually local zoning codes that require a higher caliber of construction um, on top of the requirements of operation I mentioned. Again, I absolutely believe those should be there. But the tax the credit's a great tool. It just can't be the only tool, but it is the politically acceptable tool in most cases.
0: Ron is allowing communities to use COVID 19 relief funds to pay for affordable housing, and some communities are seeking to tax Airbnb units to pay for affordable housing. Affordable housing is a major issue in the Georgia gubernatorial campaign and elsewhere in in campaigns around the country. What else can be done to encourage localities to build this housing that's so crucial? Um, And how much are we running into this not in my backyard? attitude.
4: So we're running into the not in my backyard attitude, significant numbers of communities across the nation. <laughs> um, myself, you know, you, you indicated the legislative or excuse me, the uh, legal battle in your neighborhood for that development.
0: Right. All the limousine liberals. They said not in this neighborhood. We're not doing it.
4: Yeah, it was interesting. My <laughs> hometown I was part of the development. Um, and, you know, we fought for a year and a half. After three years of planning the development, everybody thought, you know, that's a great idea until we actually pulled the trigger and they realized it was going to happen. And then they said, not in my backyard. And there was litigation over it. It got ugly. You know, our, our, our city here, Rockford, Illinois, made federal news or national news, sorry, um, because of a federal uh Allegation that the city was violating civil rights of individuals, you know, who wanted to live in this development. It got very ugly. Ultimately, you know, a year and a half into it, we won the lawsuit. We were able to build it and move on. And to your point, in your neighborhood, neighborhood values are safe. Um, in, in fact, increasing. There is no crime issue. There are no challenges. Interesting.
0: a little bit about what localities like los angeles san francisco new york and washington which have huge homeless populations are doing to address the problem of affordable housing since the start of the covid covid pandemic we've seen tent cities pop up all over the place here in town i've been in washington 40 years and i've never seen anything like this before how can we get people housed in the near term? What can we do for unhoused families beyond that?
4: Sure. So I, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of movement in these cities and others that are taking, you know, what had been um, perhaps thriving or borderline hotels, financially borderline hotels, that because of COVID, you know, ceased to exist. They're buying up those health hotels and they're, you know, converting those to housing um, for individuals coming out of homelessness. That's a mm-hmm. approach. It's an interesting twist of things because many of these same communities have previously said um, or changed zoning ordinances where single-room occupancy apartments right. were longer desirable and didn't want them, and now we're creating single-room occupancy apartments solve <laughs> this challenge and repurpose what was vacant or blighted real estate. So it's it's matching up the needs obviously with um, with the available resources and the lowest hanging fruit is repositioning existing property. I, I think we're seeing communities do that, um, getting the rental relief uh, that COVID put out there and the vouchers into the hands of the private sector. To subsidize or pay for rents for homeless individuals is also important. Mm -hmm. I think that's another disconnect between the street level and the community and and our national legislators. Um, I I think it's an attractive thing to push for vouchers. I I absolutely believe they provide benefit. I believe that they're important. However, trying to put vouchers into a community is damn near impossible. Because so many private landlords don't want to deal with the red tape and the headache. So I I think a thing that can be done locally as well as nationally is to make the voucher program more streamlined and with less challenge. Mm -hmm. So that way we could distribute these vouchers into families faster and we can get uh, private sector landlords to accept them because they don't hear them.
0: We will leave it there. That was the voice of Ron Kluwer. He's the Illinois market president of Gorman and Company and an affordable housing advocate. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take one final short break and come back, so stay tuned. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. A couple of uh, of final stories to to pass by you before we finish the show. Um, Not in any particular order, but uh, you might remember OAN, the One America Network. This is one of the networks, along with Newsmax, that Donald Trump promoted heavily uh, after the 2020 election. It appears that OAN is going off the air uh, on Saturday, at least for the most part. Uh, OAN in April was dropped by DirecTV, which is owned by AT&T. That was 15 million subscribers. The 15 million households had access to OAN on DirecTV. That was a blow. And then a couple of days ago, uh, Verizon announced that it would drop OAN from its Fios television service beginning on Saturday. That's another 5 million homes. Now, the only place where OAN is going to uh, appear are two uh, cable providers. Honestly, I've never heard of Frontier Cable and GCI Liberty Cable. Never heard of them. And, And a streaming service called... Cloud TV, K-L-O-W-D, TV. Uh, OAN is based in San Diego, California. It's owned by a billionaire family. And uh, they're being threatened, not threatened with lawsuit. They're actually being sued uh, for promoting some of the more outlandish lies about the 2020 election. Um, And uh, these cable providers have just decided that they're not interested in carrying this this channel anymore. So as of Saturday, that's going to be the end of it on Verizon Fios, which is actually quite popular in the Washington area. Uh, we told you yesterday that the family of Shireen Abu Akhla, uh was uh, here in Washington and uh, was meeting with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Shireen Abu Akhla was arguably the most popular Uh, journalist at Al Jazeera. She's an American citizen of Palestinian origin, um, highly respected journalist. She was uh, shot in the face and killed by uh, Israeli soldiers. Uh, The Israelis say there were terrorists in the area. There weren't any terrorists in the area. She was just walking down the street and somebody pointed a rifle at her and shot her in the face. Um, Nobody's going to be Prosecuted for this, and for whatever reason, the Biden administration just doesn't seem to be terribly interested in uh, in following up. Uh, President Biden said that when he was in Israel two weeks ago, he raised the the uh, killing of Shireen Abu Akla with uh, his Israeli counterparts. They said, "Yes, it's a terrible thing. They're going to do an investigation." This is the same nonsense that they always say when this kind of thing happens. Whenever an American is killed, now. Compare the killing of Shireen Abu Akhla with the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, who was not even an American citizen. He was a green card holder, but he was a Saudi citizen. And, you know, the president's threatening Saudi Arabia and he's threatening the crown prince, and we're going to bring you to justice, and your country has no redeeming social qualities, he said. And it was just one fiasco after the other. So, why the difference between Jamal Khashoggi, and Shireen Abu Akla, an American citizen. Well, it's because it was the Israelis that killed her. Uh, so the family met with uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken yesterday, and Blinken said all the right things. I'm gonna, I'll tell you exactly what he said. Um, he said he's deeply appreciative of the opportunity to meet with Shireen's family He would use the opportunity of the meeting to underscore for Shireen's family our deepest condolences on her tragic death and to reiterate the priority we attach to accountability, something we continue to discuss with our Israeli and Palestinian partners. Come on, man. So when when the family finished the meeting and left the building, uh... Shireen's niece, Lina abu Akla, who's acting as a spokesperson for the family, said, Our family just finished meeting with Secretary Blinken. Although he made some commitments on Shireen's killing, we're still waiting to see if this administration will meaningfully answer our calls for justice for Shireen. Blinken told us that he had a duty to protect every U.S. citizen. We will hold him to this. Nothing short of a U.S. investigation that leads to real accountability is acceptable. And we won't stop until no other American or Palestinian family endures the same pain that we have. You might recall that even after the Israelis killed Shireen, they attacked her funeral and they were beating the pallbearers with clubs to the point where they lost their footing and almost dropped the coffin. But nobody wants to talk about that stuff. There is a report today from CalMatters.org saying that, get this, one million Californians do not have access to safe drinking water. Now, this is the result of, a, of an audit that the, uh, that the state just completed. Under state law, every Californian has the right to safe, clean, affordable, and accessible water. Okay? So it's, a, it's a, a right, a legal right, that you have access to clean water. But the audit found several things. It found that more than 920,000 Californians face a risk of increased cancer of the liver and the kidneys because they get drinking water from one of the more than 370 water systems that don't meet water quality standards. More than 150 of those systems have failed to meet the standards for five consecutive years. And an additional 432 systems serving more than 1 million people are currently at risk of failing. More than two-thirds of the failing water systems are, no surprise, located in low-income, disadvantaged, and minority communities. That is absolutely unforgivable. Uh, one thing about this audit is that it doesn't say what they're going to do to, uh, to fix the, the problem. It doesn't say anything at all. It just says, hey, there's a, there's a problem. Somebody should do something. Mm. One other big surprise, at least for me today, was right here in Washington, the United States Senate on the uh, and this is the the Senate Judiciary Committee subcommittee uh, on um, on legislation uh, met to discuss marijuana reform. This is the first time in the history of the Republic that the Senate Judiciary Committee has met to discuss the legalization of marijuana, or at least its decriminalization. They had five witnesses including a former federal prisoner who was arrested for, uh, for possession of marijuana, uh, something that they call a, a marijuana alarmist, testified before the panel. This is a, a subcommittee chaired by Senator Cory Booker, the Democrat of uh, New Jersey. And as soon as this thing was done, Booker said, I'm chairing a Senate hearing on decriminalizing cannabis at the federal level. We are closer than we have ever been before. To making progress on this issue and to ensuring justice for Americans who have been victims of the war on drugs. Uh, This is a very big deal. And frankly, if Joe Biden won't do it, uh, then maybe uh, the Democrats in the Senate can do it and force his hand. So this this bill was authored by Booker. But it was also co-authored by Chuck Schumer, the, the Senate Majority Leader, and Ron Wyden of Oregon. Good news. Okay, we're going to leave it there. I'd like to thank our guests, Mark Sloboda, John Kane, Steve Grumbine, and Ron Kluwer. Thank you to Ryan, Dimitri, Andre, everybody in the booth, the entire Sputnik team, our talented producer, Ray. I'm John Kiriakou. Hello to Michelle Witte on vacation. Join us tomorrow. Bye-bye.